0: As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke,
1: and I'm Victoria.
0: And we're currently engaging in time travel um, because we're actually uh, recording this at the end of the this episode, but we're inserting it backwards because if you listen to the last episode, you would know that we split the episode in two because it went for a really, really long time. So if you're listening to this episode first before the other one, probably go back and listen to that one because we're. Pretty much, we're just kind of inserting this in the middle. So, it's going to like have like zero context. We're just going to go straight into it. So, what do you reckon, Victoria? What's what's time travel like? Do you feel any different?
1: Oh, it's just, I feel very David Tennant-like.
0: <laughs> we, we are breaking the space-time <laughs> continuum right now. I'm talking to you from the other side of the wow. world and we're inserting this like half an hour before we, we actually set it or something. It's very confusing, <laughs> but nonetheless...
1: They're going to make another Back to the Future about this. It's going to be great.
0: (laughs) Back to the Future Part Four.
1: Back to the Future: Brides Have Revisited. It's going to be great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That would be so weird. Um, Okay, let's do it.
1: Okay, so I've got a few notes here. Um, I've got my first note was grace weaving throughout the story. You've covered that Mm -hmm. in a much nicer fashion than I could have. It was much more eloquent. So, thank you, Luke. Um, and I mean, okay, I've, I've got to give some context as to where I was reading this book. Well, I should say listening to, as I said, I was listening to the audiobook. Um, I finished it on my first day of a five day retreat with Benedictine sisters, nuns actually, cloistered nuns up in York in England. And, um, I didn't realize at the time that the, the Benedictines prayed so much six times a day. And so <laughs> I stayed up my first night there finishing Brideshead because I just wanted to know how it ended because everyone else has, yes, alluded to the ending so many times. And so I was trashed the next day and had to get up for, you know, um, for what did they call it matins? <laughs> anyway, but where I sat in the abbey, I could actually see the um, the little red light um, in the sanctuary. Oh, I could see it really well, and um, yeah, because because yeah, the um, our Lord was is reserved in the Eucharist, sort of like to the side in a, in a room, and if you sit. To the side of the, like to the, the far side of the Abbey, you can see into this room. And that's where I would sit. Not actually so I could see in, but so I could be near the window. And um, anyway, so I was really tired. And honestly, throughout the whole five days, I was quite tired because I never quite got around the six times of prayer a day. But um, I could always see that light. And I was still reflecting on the ending of Bride's Head. And I'm not spoiling anything, but that little red light is one of the most important things in the entire i would say the most important thing in the entire book so i found that really really powerful mm. i liked how it interwove with my own experience right so grace weaving throughout the story got it i've got here a note about julia's choice and what i mean by that is the fact that as luke alluded to julia and charles uh beginning an affair but and am i allowed to say what happens Luke? sort of
0: yeah, yeah, I yeah, think okay. I think we've I think we've scared off.
1: Yeah, okay. <laughs> spo- I, don't know, I don't know why we're so apprehensive about this. You guys listen to this of your own. You yeah, know, we
0: choice. weren't usually. We weren't usually, but I don't know. It was just. I think it was just something about this book that I was like, it's such a. We've
1: gotten timid in our hiatus.
0: We've changed. We're at more extreme latitudes now than we once were.
1: Um, yeah, so Julia and Charles begin an affair, and it causes lots of problems. And there are many really interesting dialogues, actually, about a nineteen thirties, almost like cradle Catholic trying to explain the concept of annulment to um, someone of no faith. Like those conversations are very interesting. Um, and the fact is that in the end, because of a miracle that the two of them witness, concerning um, Lord Marchmain, Julia decides to end this affair, and pretty much hints at the fact that you know she might just spend her whole life trying to understand these mysteries she was brought up with, and, and potentially alone because she's not going back to her her husband, Rex Mortram, um, who is another fascinating character.
0: Did you visualize, actually? we're going back to Gatsby now. Did you visualize Rex as what's the name of the guy from um from Great Gatsby, the the
1: Tom Buchanan?
0: Yes. Yes. Did you that's who I had in my head for Rex.
1: <laughs> no, but he but a character like that. I actually had and this is really silly. I had the um the uh actor Rex Harrison in my head who plays um Henry Higgins in <laughs> Um, the Audrey Hepburn movie of My Fair Lady. And simply because uh, they're both American and they're both called Rex. So, that was who I had in my head. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> so, I was more thinking characteristics. No, no,
1: no. He does, he does have that kind of Tom Buchanan uh, energy. And, um, yeah. Having said that, though, sorry, Rex Mortrum is Canadian, isn't he? I apologize.
0: Yes, yes. Um, Well, it's still America. It's just not the United States of America.
1: (laughs) Continental American. (laughs) Is that a phrase? (laughs) It is now. Okay, what was I going to say? Yes, anyway, so I spent the entire book um, really disliking the character of Julia, really disliking her, but towards the end, I think she was the one that I respected the most because, because of that decision she made to of her own choice, there was nothing forcing her to. And you got the feeling that, you know, while she was at peace with the decision, she was probably going to lead a quieter life with maybe less love in it because of it. And I just I just thought that was so powerful. Um so I just wanted to say that. Um readers can read it and see what they think. I won't ruin any more. Um my other my other note was well I alluded to it. I'm not gonna go into it, but the fact that I just thought at the beginning, Charles Ryder to be quite a Nick Carraway, this sort of like exterior character who comes in, who doesn't judge, who is very neutral, um, who observes things, observes things that are immoral and doesn't say anything because he's you know enlightened and liberal. Um, but Charles has that extra notch in his um, character arsenal, I suppose, and I think that he—it's that thing that Evelyn Waugh alluded to—the the redemption. Um, that conversion, the fact that Charles doesn't stay like this, that's what I've always kind of not liked about Nick Carraway. He saw all these things, was slightly traumatised, but I'm not quite sure if he ever changes whether he just picked up with another set of friends who also led questionable lives and watched from the outside occasionally dipping in. Do you get what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean.
1: He's sort of like a redeemed Nick Carraway and I liked that. Okay, my last note is this, and it's not any literary analysis, it's just letting you into the pure delight of reading a book, um, my little experience of this. So um, since I've moved to London, I've read a whole bunch of books and they just all happen to have been set in England uh, or sometimes in England, and it's weird because they're mentioning all these places, particularly in London, like streets and establishments that I know, um, that I walk past, and – Anyway, so when I was reading *Brideshead Revisited*, and we heard we hear about um, Rex Mortram being sent to the Jesuits at Farm Street <laughs> Church. Yeah. It, I got so excited because that's the church that some of my friends um, do the music for, the music ministry for, and um, I've been there before and I've met some of the, the priests there, and I started to realise, or I started to learn. Especially through the book, but you know, talking to other people, that this was like the central, one of the central city churches when there were much more Jesuits, and it was just, it was just interesting, and I, I just got really excited. The same thing happened when I read the picture of Dorian Gray, and he was walking through Covent Garden. And I was like, I was there yesterday. I know what you mean. This is so nice, as opposed to like sitting in Sydney and being like, I don't know where any of these places are. <laughs> All their connection.
0: No, yeah, that's true. That's connection. really true.
1: Um, so I was really excited to see um, some churches that I, have you know, visit coming up in in the story, and it really made it more real. Um, almost like these were people from the past. And the other thing, probably my favorite bit of the whole book, and this is a bit tongue in cheek when I say favorite, um, was the whole retelling of Rex Mortram's visits for catechism. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, and where he just you know he is so determined to marry Julia Julia's a Catholic he is not um and he also just doesn't tell anyone that he's married and he doesn't seem to think it's a problem it's um real. He, he thinks of himself it's it, it, it's a bit of a long story but anyway um, and the priest is saying something along the lines of you know um uh, Rex can you tell me um, how many sacraments there are or something like that and he says, Whatever you tell me, Father, that's how many there are. <laughs> that's what he says for everything. And um...
0: <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to look up this this quote. Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if I'll be able to find it online, but there was this quote, yeah, here we go. Here we go. Um, <laughs> I've only got a part of the quote here. But basically, that uh, the, the 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 Jesuit priest says that Rex does not correspond to any degree of paganism known to the missionaries. <laughs> I found that to be such a funny line um, because he's just such a yeah that he's just like I'll just believe whatever you tell me, and and then Cordelia, who who's probably my favourite character from the book, like tells him all this ridiculous you- stuff. Um, that's completely untrue, and he totally takes her at her word and starts saying, well, what about this idea that we have to face this direction? I can't remember what the exact the example is. Face
1: east when we sleep. Yeah, like that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great bit. Um, I really, yeah, That's if you're reading the book and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I have a road trip coming up. I'm going to read this to my friends. Align it so that you're reading that bit out loud because that bit's really, really funny. Um, and there is a bit in that, in that section though, where I think Rex actually does like learn the entire catechism, like back to front. Like I don't think he gets it, but he just like spurts off all this stuff and father's like, where did this come from? Um, he's, he's, Rex Mortram is an interesting character. He's constantly referred to by Julia and other characters as, you know, half a man or a lesser man or a shadow of a man. But to be honest... And that that could be true but there were there were bits about him that I found really interesting um, he I found him lacking lacking a certain kind of fiber like a moral fiber or a character like a strong character of some sort like he seemed to kind of flit between whatever he needed to flit between but I found I found him an interesting character and at first I didn't see the point of him but I think you know to quote something that Luke sent to me recently did, you said you're going to have to sit with bride's head for a while. And to be honest, I think I will too. Like, I've only finished it a few weeks ago and I feel like I haven't thought about it enough. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's something – something, it's a book that I think will probably continue to come back to me, I think, for the rest of my life. And that's why I like – part of the reason why I want to read it again is that it's just so – to me, I found it so – like, I don't mean this in a bad way. People can use this word in a, in a bad way, but it's so dense it in the sense that like – and especially towards the end, because it sort of feels like at the start, it feels like all war is doing is telling you all these like flippant conversations at Oxford between undergrads, yeah. you know, and it's like <laughs> undergrads, what do you do? whatever. And champagne. <laughs> but by the yeah, but by but by the end of the book, you sort of start thinking. War has has almost like intentionally put everything in this book. Like he has because there's so many things that kind of
1: I wouldn't say I guess line intentionally. Up. I would say very much
0: intentionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, intentionally. And so that's part of the reason why I would want to go back and read it again, kind of knowing what happens, and then kind of read it again. And I think you'd get more out of it. Um, and I barely ever have a desire to do that with a book.
1: Certain certain yeah. books need to be read twice. Um, another book that's exactly like that is Emma by Jane Austen. So the first time you read it, you are oblivious because you're in um, it's it's written in third person, but Emma's um, Emma sort of seeps into this objective third person, and it's not so objective anymore. There's a particular word for it, and I'm, I'm forgetting the name. Um, free and direct, free and direct discourse, I think it's called. I might come back to you with that, Luke. Um, <laughs> free indirect discourse. And um, anyway, and so the first time you read it, everything's a surprise. Every, like you think everything Emma thinks. You think, oh, this person is surely going to marry this person, but then this comes out of the, you know, woodworks, blah, 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 until right at the end there's a big reveal and you're definitely not. Mm. It's because mm. it's it's very craftily misdirected you. Jane Austen has misdirected you, and it's wonderful. So the second time you read it, you're picking up on things from the first page where you think, wow, okay, I sh- there was no way I was going to see that happening, but she's embedded it all throughout, all these little clues. And I think Brideshead is very much the same because I felt the same when, you know, the first time I read the first, like a friend of mine read the first three chapters or so to me in the car about two or two years ago. And I did think it was just a really light tale about, yeah, undergraduates at Oxford. And I thought that was the reason she was wanting to read it to me, because it was uh, soothing for the ride or something. I've since realised that's not the case. She was trying to get to more of the meaty bit. Um, But yeah, it is masterfully crafted and it's, it's really good. I'd like to read more of Evelyn Moore's works. Definitely inspired me too. I wanted to ask you, Luke. Probably it can be one of our last points. What did tell me about what you thought of Cordelia? You said she was probably your favourite.
0: She she was probably my favourite character because she's she was probably the most sensible person in the book, and yet for most of it she's like twelve.
1: I can see you really liking liking her and just like grasping onto her her sanity and her reason.
0: I. But in a, like, in a, I guess in a certain sense, I mean, there's there's so much that can be talked about with this book. Like, we might do, like, a, a Brideshead Revisited Revisited episode or something later on. Um, we
1: can get Chiari. That's such a good idea.
0: Could, um, with Cordelia, what I found really lovely about her was that she just, like, I sort of imagined her and I've heard about... Um, About nuns like this That she would end up becoming like This kind of really, like a Mother Angelica Perhaps, I don't really know that much About Mother Angelica, but I kind of imagine Like from the little bit that I know about her That she's a bit like this This kind of fiery Kind of very um, Uh You know, she knows what's what, and she's sticking to it. And kind of part of that comes out in the um, in a conversation that she has with with Charles about art. And she says, um, "What do you think about modern art?" And Charles says, "Oh, it's absolute bosh." And she's like. Yes, that's, that's what I thought too. And she talks about how she had this this argument with a with a religious sister that was teaching her about um, modern art. And she said, oh, we shouldn't criticise things that you don't completely understand. <laughs> anyway, I just kind of um, – it's it sort of – I found it amusing because I'd imagined that Cordelia would go on to become a religious sister and this kind of thing because that's sort of the direction that the book is pushing her towards. And she doesn't. She, she does um, join a religious community um, but finds that she doesn't have a vocation and leaves. Anyway, that's a whole other thing because that's also quite beautiful. What war does with that as well, um, and look, like I said, there's so much that could be talked about there. Um, but yeah. Anyway, I just found her to be such a – she was so funny. She was very, um, she was very sane and very like almost stubbornly sane. You know. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think she,
1: there's yeah. no coincidence that she is a child for a lot of this book. Um. Because you are tempted to dismiss her because she's because she's a child and she can't possibly understand all these adult things that are going on, and to a degree, I think that might be a little bit true, but you know I think it kind of is is alluding to that that childlike faith that Jesus wants us to have. Um, and she is very smart. You can, she's very intelligent. She has these theological conversations with Bridie, who is another character whom I wish we could talk about, but we probably don't have enough time. Um, but the other thing I loved about Cordelia, and it's a very small part, but it is one of the bits that I liked the most, was when Charles met her um, years and years later. Um, after she'd served as a was, as a nurse in the war, was
0: it? Uh, a nurse in the, I think, the Spanish Civil War or something like that, yeah. The
1: Spanish Civil War, that's right. Um, he first mentions that she looked haggard and unattractive and, you know, she let herself down and all these sort of things. Um, and he, he only spends like a few days with her, I think, in the house before he starts to kind of revise his... Um, <laughs> revise his opinion
0: and she kind of like there's that bit where she kind of says that like what what was it i forget it was almost like that they're that they're um i can't remember the exact words that they use but there's that slight there's that uh, there's that conversation between Charles and, and Cordelia, um, where she basically says, "You know, because it's from Charles 's perspective, and he kind of, as, as you mentioned, sees her as kind of like a bit of a waste, really, that she had all this promise and she 's just a bit of a tired waste, and that she says she thought, she thought the same thing about Charles and Julia um, yeah. when she saw them, And that I found really interesting. But yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's that's a whole long conversation as well. But but we won't. Yeah, we-
1: I forgot about that. I just got chills. That's <laughs> a whole other thing. You know what? We might we might revisit this and brideshead revisited revisited. I think we've covered quite a good chunk. There's you know there's there's space to talk about brideshead. There's space to talk about, for instance, their trips to Venice. But I think they're best left for another time because they're very interesting
0: too. I guess the 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 only last thing that I want to talk about and I just want to do this very briefly um partially because I don't want to go into it too much because I don't want to sort of like it can potentially be you know things that people argue about and silly things like that. I'm not saying you'd argue with me about it but I'm just talking about for the sake of our listeners, you know, not dragging everyone into this into something but um Con- something that I guess came up while I was reading this. Is that I have a I have a slight concern that there can be a certain dismissiveness of writers, kind of from the um, the immediate pre-conciliar period. Um, now, what do I mean by that? I mean um, sort of like the early twentieth century, leading up to the Second Vatican Council. And, and I think that part of the reason why there can be this temptation towards a dismissiveness towards it is because there can be, I could perhaps an an illusion, you know, there could have been things that happened, um, bad examples from people and and this kind of thing um, that that have led people to believe that, that the church was fairly unrealistic and a little bit, um, this is going to be a bit of a strange statement, but an almost romantic Phariseeism in that it wasn't particularly realistic about real world situations that people have, you know, very, very, uh, lead very complex lives, you know, and that the church can sort of sometimes take a bit of a one size fits all approach. That it's like, well, those are the rules, and you got to stick to the rules, kind of thing. And obviously, we always need to 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 avoid a kind of Pelagianism, um, and and a Phariseeism, um, and and that kind of thing. But something that I find very um, and obviously they do have a point there, you know, people people who who would say that kind of thing. But I would say that that particularly war, I found that in this book, kind of debunks that myth to a certain extent that that pre-conciliar writers and that the pre-conciliar church wasn't particularly um, was quite ignorant of of the real-world situation of people and what the church can offer people in the real world. Um This book to me kind of demonstrates that, that it's a super messy book. It's messy as there's awful things that happen. There's people with big problems and Mm. it doesn't offer simple solutions. Um, You know, it's, it's, I've, anyway, I don't want to sort of go into that in a great deal um, because I don't want people to get the wrong impression of why I'm saying that. I'm just sort of like, you know, thinking about this and kind of thinking about, you know, I'm obviously only, you know, in my twenties. Um and so, you know, I can't kind of go back to the pre period and see what it was like. But I can kind of get that impression that people can be a little bit dismissive of writers from that period. Um, because they kind of see it as very, yeah, rigid and 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 unrealistic. Um but I think that Brideshead kind of speaks against that a bit, that it's that it's firstly um very realistic, but also secondly very faithful um to to the church's teaching and to how god's grace can work through um through his will really um and Mm. through what you would call i don't know what you'd call it but i guess through through orthodoxy i guess you could say so yeah anyway that was just that was just a thought that i had kind of with this is that it's just like well it's just very interesting this this is a great this is a great um Book that's very realistic about a lot of problems that are more common, I guess you could say, today. Um, It also busts a hole in the idea that that things started really going awry with humans after the 1960s. You get the impression, this book is pretty clear that things were pretty bad yeah (laughs) it's not as though the world was sinless prior to the (laughs) 1960s um so that as well you know there's no as you've mentioned before on another episode there's no golden age no you know and this very much speaks to that as well so yeah it's it's fascinating
1: yeah i like how the church is seen to be within um the messiness of everyday human life Like, like what's the name of the priest
0: in this book I don't remember. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But-
1: What's the name of the main one? The the part the padre as uh, he's called sometimes. Um, I can't remember his name, but he like one of my other favorite bits is when he makes f- uh, a few visits back to the house during um, Lord Ma- uh, March means illness, and how sometimes he just sits at the table and chats with Charles, or sometimes he tr- you know he makes a visit into the bedroom and. Um, to see if he wants to receive um uh absolution or mm. anything like that um and gets you know tossed out, but he comes back and he's and he's smiling and he's and he's understanding and he's not expecting everyone to you know uh put on a habit and join him and you know join monasteries or anything mm. like that. He's very much aware of his sheep, I think his
0: flock. Mm. Yeah. It reminds me of that Pope Francis thing about the smell of the sheep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My, my fine, my, my concluding note would just be that this book has made me as someone who I would say was not particularly a cradle Catholic really think about the importance of being brought up in a faith. Even if the children decide not to follow it later on in their lives, how that affects the way they see the world. And, Mm. um, especially other members of the family, and how it informs your, um, your particular moral code or lack thereof. Um, because you, you constantly hear Julia and Sebastian sort of saying something along the lines of, I wish I didn't have this, but because I do, I see something different and I cannot change that. Mm. Do you get what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. It's a constant theme in the book.
1: And I found that, found that fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um I wish I had the quotes here. I don't. Once again we can do it in another episode, but that's I think that's what it's left me with, the fact that you can give people a gift in their youth and just because they don't accept it straight away of their own accord in adulthood doesn't mean it's not somewhere planted deep within their deep within their heart.
0: I think, that's, I think that's a great place to, to finish. Look, like I said, there's there's so much that we can talk about, mm-hmm. um, but I think we should finish there. So, hopefully, yeah, hopefully in the next episode we'll have Kiara and I'm hoping that we'll be looking at the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, and... Um, finally <laughs> it seems um so yeah join us uh next time for for that episode hopefully bye
1: bye that was an episode of catholics read from radio.org.au